pray let's pray so Jesus we do we believe that you are the God who calls us by name who's fought for our freedom and purchased it and yet we recognize that there are all, all sorts of things in life that that seem to trip us up and snag us and Lord um, I pray that you'd help us quiet our hearts and our minds and our spirit enough today to hear your voice and that you would do what you do that you bring freedom, we pray, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Amen. Welcome. My name's Ryan. Glad you're here today. Uh, We're in a series, our third week in a series out of Elijah's life. And if you have your Bible, open with me to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. I can remember this this day because there was a lot of buildup. The day was January 28th, 1997. It was the summer before my senior year of high school, and a bunch of friends of mine and I had gone in together to buy a pay-per-view boxing match. It was the real deal of Andrew Holyfield versus Iron Mike Tyson. Now, most boxing matches you probably don't remember. My guess is this one you at least have a recollection of because third, uh, the third round, uh, Mike Tyson came out of the gates, tried to spit out his mouth guard, and promptly bit off a portion of Evander Holyfield's ear. Do you remember this? Okay, so I had just dipped my first chip in the queso, and I'm putting my chip up to my mouth, and you know, it's, it's over because a portion of Holyfield's ear is on the floor, right? And I, I decided that day that I'm not a huge fan of boxing. Um, but what I've recognized is that there is this draw to see a fight. And whenever there's a fight, there's a crowd that forms, right? There's something in us where we go, man, I, I at least want to look on and, and check it out. I had a, a friend that invited me to go see the uh, Conor McGregor versus the Russian dude, um, what's his, Ivan Drago, is that his name? Um, fight recently, little Rocky humor, no one? But people hung me out, thank you, back there, Eric, thank you. Uh, he invited me, you know, a few weeks ago to go see the Conor McGregor fight, billed as the best UFC fight in the history of UFC and all that. Um, and, you know, I said no because I'd been watching the Kavanaugh hearings that week and I'd seen enough fighting. And so I thought, um, okay, all right, I'll stop, I'll stop. <laughs> Have you noticed that all around us there's fighting? And there, there's a, a survey that's done by the Institute for Economics and Peace, and they, they give our world a peace rating every single year. It's steadily on the, um, the decline, peace is steadily on the decline, but what they found out in their most recent survey of the 162 countries around the globe that they surveyed, only 11 of them are without some sort of military conflict of some sort. 
162 countries surveyed, only 11 can say we're not involved in some sort of war or some sort of conflict with our military. Now, that's been the case for a long time. It is the case now. So here's my question. Are you just not listening to John Lennon? Like, have we just not given peace a chance? Is that, is that what's going on here? Or is there more going on in the world than we can see with just our natural eyes? Is there more going on than what we've probably been taught? If you, like me, grew up, grew up in sort of a Western post-enlightenment education that was based on the scientific model, what you can see is what's true, what's observable, what's measurable, what's repeatable, that's what's really ultimately true. There's no such thing as what we would call the spiritual realm because we can't observe it, measure it, or repeat it, therefore it doesn't exist. How many of you grew up with some sort of educational trajectory that felt a little bit like that? I did. I did. Um, I, I think it's maybe said best by the great Kaiser Soze at the end of The Usual Suspects, played by Kevin Spacey. The greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. You may have noticed the Bible doesn't spend a lot of time philosophizing about the problem of evil. It simply assumes that it is. It assumes that it's a reality, that evil is a thing, and it is an issue. And here, from a pastoral point of view, if we don't have a good grasp of the problem of evil, that evil is a real thing, that people do have a free will, and they can go against the will of God, if we don't have a theology of a problem of evil, here's what we end up doing. We end up blaming everything on God. Everything's God's fault then. And if you read through the scriptures, that simply isn't true. There are two sides. There are good, there is something such as good and and there is evil. Evil is a reality. And we're going to see it come to the forefront in 1 Kings chapter 18 today. But before we get there, keep your finger in 1 Kings chapter 18 and I want you to flip over to Exodus chapter 20. Because, and this may seem a little strange to you, but I'm just going to invite you, go along with me and then come and ask me questions, as many as you want afterwards, okay? According to the Bible, there is God, a supreme God who rules and reigns above it all. He's the creator, he's the maker, and he is the sustainer. Somebody say amen. Amen. And there are lowercase g gods. Also very real, also very powerful, and typically, not always, evil. Look at the way that it's said in the Ten Commandments. I mean, as followers of Jesus and people of the Scriptures, we we love the Ten Commandments. People want them posted everywhere. But listen to what they say. You shall have no other what? In the Hebrew, it's the word Elohim. Will you say that with me? Elohim. It's going to be important, but here's what he's saying. You shall have no other gods before me. Here's what he doesn't say in the Ten Commandments. There are no other gods. Have you ever thought about that? He goes, no, no, there are, but don't worship any of them above me. You shall not, and if you're going, well, Paulson, that's really what it's talking about is idolatry. Okay, and I say, just time out, hold on, because they're going to address idolatry, and it's in a different category. Listen, 
You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven, above, or on the earth, beneath, or in the waters, below. Don't make an image. Don't carve an idol. So it has Elohim, other Elohim as a category, and idols as a different category. Really interesting. There's a distinction that's made. In the Hebrew, this word Elohim certainly is translated God. It's also translated as four other words. If you want to find out what those are, come to the seminar on Tuesday night. don't have time. But it's translated as God, certainly. But think of it more as like a category, a, a powerful spiritual being. And Elohim is an invisible but very real spiritual creature. So we have the God of the Bible, or Yahweh, as he's named. And it's, isn't it interesting that God needs a name? He can't just be God. He's like, I've got a name. My name is Yahweh, right? That's a whole other message, but one that we'll give at some point in time. And that he's hostile or against these other Elohim, these rebellious gods. Flip back just a few chapters in Exodus to Exodus chapter 12. Listen to what they say as, as the Israelites are leaving Egypt and the power that they've been under there. It says this, On the same night I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the, what? Elohim, on all the gods of Egypt. I am Yahweh. So this whole Exodus narrative is ultimately about God judging the other gods. In fact, in fact, all of the 10 plagues that were given to Egypt were depictions of Egyptian gods. So the sun god, for example, was seen as the god that's high and above all the other gods of the Egyptian um, pantheon. His name is Amun-Ra. And so, is it any coincidence that Yahweh blots out the sun for three days? What's he saying? He's saying, I'm the Elohim that's above all the other Elohim. They all bow down to me, and you should too. But what he's not saying is those other Elohim don't have power. I mean, have you ever read through the Exodus narrative and when Moses throws his um, staff down, it becomes a snake, and he puts his hand inside of his jacket, which is convenient that I'm wearing a jacket today, and then he pulls it out, and it's leprous, and you go... What in the world is going on here? And then he starts doing miracles. And what do Pharaoh's magicians do? They do miracles also. It's categorically sort of shifting and messing with me as I read through this again. When the Israelites get out from under the thumb of the Egyptians, they cross through the Red Sea. They um, sing a song. There's like tambourines and all sorts of percussion, and they get after it and sort of charismatic. It's awesome. Here's what, here's what they say. Who among the gods, or El, it's, it's, it's a derivative of the word Elohim, is like you, Yahweh. Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, and working wonders? What he doesn't say is you're the only Elohim. What he says is there's no one like you. There's no one like you. In the Old Testament, other quote-unquote Elohim were lowercase g gods, spiritual being with real authority and real power. In the New Testament, we see them sort of named as the devil, as Satan, or, or 
Colossians chapter 2, verse 15, having disarmed the what? Powers and authorities. These are the Elohim of the Old Testament, sort of repackaged powers, authorities, principalities, and he's made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. So there's a spiritual battle going on that has a physical manifestation the same is true today, but we're going to see it come on to the sort of front scenes of Scripture in 1 Kings chapter 18. If you have your Bible, turn with me there. Let me catch you up a little bit if you're sort of new with us and you're going, that was all intro. Yep, that was all intro to the intro, actually. That was cosmology. This is the world we live in. And if we don't grasp that, we'll never understand what's going on in this text, okay? Okay. 1 Kings chapter 18. Remember, uh, Elijah the prophet burst onto the scenes of the scripture when he marched into Ahab's chamber, his palace, and said, it's not going to rain for three years. God said, that's a bold thing to say. You should probably go to the wilderness and hide. And he did, fed by ravens. And evidently, he's not in the wilderness that whole time, but it extends for a while. He leaves there and goes to Zarephath, where, and Larry gave a great message on this last week. If you weren't here, um, hop online and listen to it, where Elijah's faith is growing. He sees God do miraculous things, and he's becoming this prophet of God that God intends for him to be. And we turn to 1 Kings chapter 18, and we pick up the story there, and here's what it says. Verse 1, after a long time, in the third year, so, that, so since it's rained, it's the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah, go and present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself, and on the way, he encounters Obadiah, and Obadiah is this faithful follower of Yahweh. He's been hiding prophets of Yahweh in caves, trying to save their life, because Ahab's crazy wife, Jezebel, is murdering the prophets of Yahweh. And he sees him along the way, and he says, hey, Obadiah, will you deliver a message for me? Will you go tell Ahab, it's about to go down? Meet me. That's my translation. Meet me at Mount Carmel. We're going to decide who the chief Elohim really is. Verse 16. You there? So Obadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, is that you, you troubler of Israel? That was like a ancient cut down, Okay. You're a troubler. Okay. So if you want to use that this week, I, please, that's great. Um, I have not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord Yahweh's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Stop there. You'll remember when, um, when Elijah marched into Ahab's chambers, he said, it's not going to rain until I say so. Now, for these people who were in the northern kingdom, they had stopped worshiping Yahweh and they'd started worshiping Baal. Will you say that with me? Baal. It's like you're saying Baal, but you just pause in the middle. Baal. 
Baal. There you go. They'd started worshiping Baal. And Baal happened to be the god of rain. And so from the get-go, this is a spiritual battle that Elijah is engaging in for the health and prosperity and goodness of his nation. Now, just a little bit of history on Baal, okay? It's going to get a little bit nerdy in here for the next three minutes, okay? But this is really fascinating. In Semitic languages, the name Baal means Lord. It means Lord. And in 1928, they made this fascinating archaeological discovery in a region just north of Israel called Ugarit. And they discovered 1,400 scrolls in this ancient library. And they started to learn all of these things about the god Baal, one of these lowercase g Elohims. They learned that this god Baal was the god that was worshipped in this region and held up as the chief deity in this region. In fact, he was called the prince or the lord of the underworld. Now, his title, though, his title, the title that he went by most often was The Rider on the Clouds. <laughs> now, file that away. That's going to be important in a few minutes. But just so you know, the scriptures weren't written in a vacuum. The authors of the Hebrew scriptures start using this term also, the rider on the clouds. There's no one like the God of Jeshurun, um, Israel, who rides across the heavens to help you on the What? <laughs> clouds in his majesty. So the authors of scriptures are going, you want to talk about the rider on the clouds? Let's talk about the rider on the clouds. It's not Baal. It's Yahweh. It's Yahweh. Well, interestingly enough, Baal, Lord, has added to his name in the New Testament, Zebul, which means exalted or lifted high. And you put them together You have this prince or lord of the underworld exalted and lifted high under the name of Beelzebul. You've read about this, right? And it's Jesus casting out demons and people accuse him of doing it under the power of Beelzebul, the prince or ruler of demons. (laughs) So Yahweh and Elijah's encounter with Baal is not insignificant. There's something going on here. In the ancient world, Baal was often depicted with a helmet shown with horns of a bull as a symbol of strength and fertility. In one hand, he typically had um, like a mallet or a club depicting thunder, and the other, he had a spear with something growing out of the top of it depicting that he was the god over all vegetation. So if you're sitting here thinking, So, Ryan, are you telling me that you think Baal is a legitimate spiritual being with legitimate spiritual power? Is that what you're telling me? That's what I'm telling you. That he's not a figment of imagination, that he's a demonic, real spiritual being, and Israel's apostasy was bowing the knee to this lowercase g Elohim. So here's what Elijah says. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver? Will you go back and forth between two opinions? If the Lord or Yahweh is Elohim, follow him. But if Baal is Elohim, follow him. 
But the people said what? Nothing. Nothing. They're going, we don't know. We don't know. We've been going back and forth. You're right, Elijah. We've been going back and forth. And here's what, Elijah just throws a gauntlet down. And here's what he says. Here's what he says. The spiritual battle is a reality and there's no such thing as neutrality. There's no Switzerland in the spiritual battle. And here's the thing. We live in a world where we go, well, worship is something we do at church. Or worship is something we do because we're religious. And I just want to speak into that lie. Worship is something we do because we are human. It's wired into us. You've never met somebody who is not a worshiper of something or of someone. And what Elijah says is there's no middle ground in the spiritual life. Joshua will say the same thing as they are conquesting and taking down the promised land. Here's what he says at the very end of Joshua. But if serving Yahweh seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourself this day whom you will serve. Whether the Elohim your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the Elohim of the Amorites in whose land you were living. But as for me and my house, we will serve Yahweh. Now, this is a huge issue for us today, friends, because reading a verse like Joshua, we're going, oh man, Joshua, does that mean like we can't sort of have a little bit of this and a little bit of that? And we live in a day and time where we love to keep our options open. And what God would say, what Yahweh would say is there is no middle ground. You're either with me or you're against me, but there's no in between. There's no in-between. And so here's the thing. If you, would you lean in for a moment? There's, there's so much on the line here, you guys. Our life, our vitality, all the good gifts that the creator God Yahweh would long for us to step into are on the line with our worship. Who and what we worship determines the trajectory of our life and every one of us is worshiping something or someone. And so let me, let me just show you how this plays out at the Battle of Mount Carmel and just know that this is the way it manifests there, but these same things play out all around us every single day, maybe without the literal fire, but you'll see what I mean in just a second. Verse 22, okay, we there? And Elijah said to them, I'm the only one of the prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Now, it's not true. He's not the only one left. He thinks he is. He's having a woe is me moment. He'll get over it in just a second, okay? Get two bowls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves. Let them cut it up into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set it that set fire to it. I will prepare the other bowl and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. Verse 24, it's up on the screen. Then you call on the name of your Elohim, and I will call on the name of Yahweh. The Elohim who answers by fire, he is Elohim. He's the Elohim that reigns above all the other Elohim. And the people said, what you say is good. Good call, Elijah. Let's do it. It's about to go down. Verse 25. And Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are so many of you. Call on the name of your God, your Elohim, but do not light the fire. 
So they took the bull given and they prepared it. This is sort of like um, if you win the coin toss in overtime, you get the chance to have the ball first and if you score, it's over, right? So Elijah's saying, go for it. If fire comes down, it's over. And they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar that they had made. Some versions say they limped around. But you get the picture. They're doing a little jig. They're hoping that what God sees is something that God likes, and that if God likes what he sees, then God will send the fire down that they're all hoping for, that they're all expecting. If you perform for God, then, then he'll come through for you. I mean, how many of us have interacted with God and we've thought similar things. God, if I perform for you, is this the dance you like, God? No, not that one. This one? I know I should have stretched it out, little hip flexor injury. How'd you get hurt? Preaching. Yeah, I got, I I pulled a hammy preaching this week, you know? God, if we perform for you, God, if we dance for you, if we, we do the things you like, God, then, then do you show up? Is that how we do this? And see, they, the gods, lowercase g, they demand performance. (laughs) Do your dance. Perform. But Yahweh, Yahweh God, longs for our affection. Look, if you look to the very end of this interaction, what you have is you have a summary of why Yahweh has called all the people of Israel to this mountain for this moment, for this time. Why did he call him there? You, Lord, are God. You're the, you're the chief Elohim, and you are turning their hearts back again. He's going, I want your heart. I want your affection. I want your devotion. I don't want your jig. I don't want your dance. I want your heart. You know what's interesting? I had the chance this week to read a book called The Destroyer of the Gods. And it went through this history of early Christianity. And there is no other religion on the face of the earth when Judaism is born, when Christianity is born, that would have seen affection for God as something that was desirable. The idea of delight yourself in the Lord was a uniquely Judaistic thing. No other other religions were saying that. The goal of religion in the ancient world, in Elijah's world, was keep the gods at bay. Placate them. Keep them happy so that they don't torment you and mess with you. But there's no such thing as affection for God. It's really interesting. If we start thinking, and and, and try this on for size and the way that you interact with God, if we start thinking that sin is ultimately about lack of performance rather than an affection that's broken, we actually fall into worship of these lowercase g gods. That's not Yahweh. That's a different God altogether. It's not performance that he's after. It's devotion. It's affection. See, as followers of Yahweh, as followers of Jesus, we work from acceptance, not for acceptance. And those are two very different things. See, we all know the parent that says, hey, perform and then you'll be loved, is what we call a terrible parent. 
right? That they should put as much money in a counseling fund as they do in a college fund, right? Because they're going to need to work it through, right? And counseling is a great thing. We should all probably do it, right? So do we think then, if we know it's bad parenting, that God does the same thing with us? Perform, then I'll love you. Uh, My wife and I were watching one of our favorite shows this week, the show This Is Us. And one of these young men was going off to war. And his dad stood on the porch as his son was going off to fight in Vietnam. And he said, make me proud. Make me proud. And I thought, what a weight. What a weight to put on the shoulders of a young kid. But a lot of us think God looks down at us and goes, make me proud. Or else. Or else. As C.S. Lewis said, the Christian does not think God will love us because we are good, but that God makes us good because he loves us. It's interesting, this text continues, verse 27. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. I don't know why I love this passage so much, but I do. I do. I just, something, it warms my heart. (laughs) Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is an Elohim. Perhaps he's deep in thought or busy or traveling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. Other other translations will say maybe he's relieving himself. (laughs) Right? Who knows? Now, All of these were things, as they discovered those 1,400 Ugarit texts that talked about Baal, these are all things that Baal was depicted as doing in those texts. Just an interesting side note. Shout louder! So they, uh, he must be awakened. So they shouted louder, and they slashed themselves with swords and spears. Catch this, as was their custom until their blood flowed. Why was it their custom? Well, they had this conviction that what the gods really wanted was your blood. They had this conviction that what the other lesser Elohim desired was the destruction of humanity. One of the things that weaves its way through most cultic practices is that the lowercase g gods long for blood. Now, Look up at me. Okay, this is really important. So one of the major distinctions between Yahweh and every other lowercase g God is that he does not long for your blood, but he sheds his own blood. He's not a God who wants your destruction. He actually wants your abundance and your life and your flourishing and your good. He doesn't want to take you down. He longs to build you up. That's a distinctive of Yahweh. And so other gods long for, lowercase g gods long for destruction. But the God of the Bible, Yahweh, wants your abundance. Here's the way that Jesus said it. He couldn't have been any more clear. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come, he says, that you may have life and that you may have it to the full. Maybe this week you memorized that verse. If you haven't memorized that passage, memorize it. Tuck it into your heart so that when your mind starts to wander, God, is this what you want from me? He wants your good. That's what he wants. It's really interesting. 
If you start looking at the, the trends in current mental health, which we're going to talk about next week because Elijah goes from the mountaintop to the valley real quick and starts struggling with suicidal ideation and depression, and, and we're going to talk about that next week. Don't miss that. Please, don't miss that. But what we see in our culture today is somewhere between 13, depending on the study that you read, 13 and 24% of people struggle with some sort of self-destructive tendencies, self-harm. And the highest, the highest level of that, or the, high, the most um, common amongst those is cutting, cutting and burning oneself. And so one, if that's you in this room today, don't miss next week one, but also uh, there's help available. Reach out, reach out. And I would also say, given the fact that this is a spiritual battle, there's no such thing as neutrality, I would say that there's more going on there than just what meets the eye. That there's also a spiritual issue that's going on there. This is not a coincidence. Not a coincidence. So the gods of Baal say, slash yourself. And it didn't just stop there. When the Israelites started to worship them, they start to see what the worship of Baal does. They've built the high places of Baal to burn their children in the fire as offerings to Baal. And God says, Yahweh says, something I did not command or mention, nor did it enter my mind. He's going, this is why I longed for you to be worshipers of me, the one true Yahweh. Because the other gods, they demand your sacrifice. They demand your blood. They demand your children. But he goes, I'm fighting for your life. Now, just try this on for size. There's, there's a number of different ways this plays out in our day, in our culture, and society. Um, not a lot of people worshiping Baal, um, but at least explicitly. But there are a number of people that bow down to other gods. And every time we bow down to other gods, these other gods demand our destruction. I mean, think about this. I was a huge baseball fan in the late 90s, early 2000s. And there was a number of baseball players bowing down to the gods of success, to the gods of fame and notoriety and records. And so what did they do? They pumped their veins full of steroids. Every single one of them knew it would eventually kill them, that it was terrible for them. But they went, well... It's what you got to do to be competitive. It's what you got to do to make it. Right? I mean, we see the same thing with addiction. We see the same thing with people that can't stop working because the gods of success and the gods of money, lowercase g gods, demand destruction. But Jesus is saying, no, 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 I've created you for abundance, not for your destruction. Our most complete picture of God is as one who dies for his enemies rather than kills them, who sheds his own blood rather than demanding ours. So can I, I just want to press on you this week, would you do some work here? Start, will you think about what you're thinking about this week and wrestle through, what's my perspective of God? Does he want my abundance like Jesus says? Or does he want my destruction? Maybe this week, maybe your practice this week is that you just put that song that we sang right before this message, who you say I am, who the sun sets free is free indeed, that I'm chosen, that I'm redeemed, that I'm called by your name, that I'm yours. The thoughts you think matter. They matter. Part of spiritual warfare is thinking 
truth. In fact, the biggest part of spiritual warfare is thinking truth. Maybe put that on your, however you listen to music, and just get it in your heart and your soul this week. And here's the way this section ends. Verse 29. Verse 29. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time of the evening sacrifice. You get the picture? Like the clock's running down, the time's running out. Their Elohim is silent, and they're starting to freak out a little bit. Some translations say they raved. Yeah, they did. They were cutting themselves. They were slashing themselves. Their blood is flowing. They're yelling at God. There's no response. No one answered. And no one paid attention. The next few passages, Elijah does an interesting thing. He's like, are you guys done? Wonderful, I'll take it from here. And he rebuilds an altar that Jezebel had torn down, rebuilds the altar of Yahweh. He starts to douse it in water. Most people go, it was a drought. How did he get water? Well, the Mediterranean Sea's right there, okay? So that, that's how he got water, probably. But he's dousing it in water going, how does this look? It's going to be really hard for God, right? And he's like, and then, and then, and then. So they're slashing themselves. They're yelling. They're shouting. They're trying to wake God up. And then you have Elijah. Verse 36. Here's what he says. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed, Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known today that you are Elohim in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Yahweh, answer me, that these people might know that you, Yahweh, are Elohim and that you are turning their hearts back again. No shouting, no begging, no beckoning, a simple prayer of faith in the midst of the chaos of blood flowing and shouts to Baal. See, the lowercase g gods, they love, they love the frantic, crazy, inhumane pace. They love that the time's running out, you got to get yours type of mentality. I mean, I think the uh, Baals or the other Elohim, they love it when people on Black Friday get trampled at Walmart. They're like, that's, we love that. That's our thing, right? They do. They love it when the blood pressure starts to rise because Christmas is coming and it's like there's so many things going on. The, the lowercase g, other things that we bow down to in worship always cause a frantic pace, which is why it's so important that in Philippians chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, Paul will write to the church at Philippi, be anxious about nothing, but in everything, with prayer and petition, present your request to God. That's all you got to do. You just got to just bring it before him. You don't even need to use a lot of words, Jesus says in the book of Matthew. You don't need to wake him up. He hears you. You don't need to dance for him. He's for you. You don't need to cut yourself because he bled on your behalf. You just come before him. Present your request to God. And the peace of God that transcends all understanding will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. 
So what are you frantic about right now? What do you feel like, man, the, the, the dial's just getting turned up? And it's probably something very real that's going on in your life, but can I invite you to come back to the God who says, come to me and receive my peace, rather than dance or cut yourself or try your hardest and work yourself to the bone and then maybe, maybe, maybe I'll show up. That's not your God. That's not your God. Verse 38. We'll land the plane here. And the fire of Yahweh fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and the soil, and also licked up all the water in the trench. I mean, just, can we just, we need, we, we're out of time, but can you imagine that? I mean, we read over it and it's like, man, that happened. No, that happened, right? And the gods or the, the prophets of Baal are cutting themselves and yelling because they expect that Baal will do the same thing. Like, so this happens. Verse 39, and when all the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried out, Yahweh is Elohim. Yahweh is Elohim. Yeah. Yeah, they did. That makes sense. Then Elijah commanded, seize the prophets of Baal. Do not let one get away. They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishron Valley and slaughtered there. And Elijah said to Ahab, go, eat and drink, for there's the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink, but Elijah climbed up to the top of Mount Carmel, bound down on the ground, and put his face between his knees. Can, can you just, you love the picture? It's, a, it's about to rain, go get some food. Okay, thank you for that. We'll get a snack, right? I mean, it seems random, but you're going to see there's a journey that's ahead that he needs to get ready for. God's preparing him. Go, he says to his servant, look towards the sea. And he went up and he looked. There's nothing, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. And the seventh time, the servant reported a cloud. As small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. Now, just a quick timeout. Baal was named what? The rider on the clouds. Hmm. And the Hebrew prophets were writing about Yahweh as the rider on the clouds. I guess we're going to find out who the true rider on the clouds is. So Elijah said, go tell Ahab, hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds and the wind rose. A heavy rain started falling and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. You see that this, this account is all about who really rules and who really reigns and who has ultimate authority and who is worthy of all glory and all honor and all praise. And not only is God worthy, Yahweh worthy of all glory and honor and praise, when we bow down to that God, we receive his affection that he's pouring out to us, but our hands are finally open to see it. We receive his abundance and we receive his peace because it's what we were originally designed and created for. Yahweh is the true rider on the clouds. And life is found 
and worship of him. As our our band comes back up, we're going to sing a few songs about our God beating up other gods. (laughs) I'm only sort of kidding. These songs take on a new meaning now, don't they? Um, But but I just want to, here's what I want to say to you. This is not the last time that Yahweh battles Baal on a mountain. See, Jesus, the Messiah, is going to be marched up to a mountain just outside of Jerusalem called Calvary. And he's going to spread his arms out wide. And see, the fires of hell are on that mountain also. But the flames of divine love are also there. And in the moment when Beelzebul or Satan or the devil or the powers of darkness or the lesser Elohim think that they have won, it's at that moment that Yahweh, Jesus, the Messiah and Savior of the world, with his outstretched arms, declares his love, declares his goodness, showers down his grace, showers down his mercy, forgives us, brings us back into right relationship with him so that we receive his affection so that we can accept his abundance and so that we can live in his peace. And so friends, here's the thing. If you're here today and you're sort of walking the fence, can I just tell you that's a, that's a non-option. You're on one side or the other. And so I just, I want to plead with you as someone who wants your good, just like God does. I want to plead with you that the direction of your life will be determined by the posture of your worship. The gods you bow down to will determine the kinds of life you live. Is it gonna be a life of self-destruction? Is it gonna be a life of frantic pace? Is it gonna be a life of trying to please God? You'll never feel like you do if that's your posture. Or, or, is it gonna be a life where you receive his love and affection, where you walk in his abundance and where you taste his peace? Would you close your eyes for just a moment? For some of you, you, maybe you're you're here and you're going, yeah, I I associate maybe more with those prophets of Baal. They describe my posture to God. For you, maybe this morning is the thousandth time you've repented and turned back. Great, wonderful. Turn back to Yahweh, Jesus, the one true God. For some of you, maybe it's the very first time you're going, I've never bowed the knee to him. Today's your day. Bow the knee. Life abundant, life full is what he's inviting you to. It's a turning from self. It's a turning from other lowercase g gods. And it's a running to the God who says, the flames of my love will never be put out. So Jesus, Yahweh, we bow in worship, we bow in adoration, we give you our affection, our lives, Lord, we we live as people who long to taste your abundance, to live in your peace, we pour out our affection to you, knowing that you're pouring out yours to us, thank you, thank you, we bow at your throne and yours alone. 